Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Dr. Serge Goswami, CEO and co-founder of InsideRx, about how precision medicine can help prevent adverse drug events. And now, on to the interview. This is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I am joined today by Dr. Serge Goswami, co-founder of the healthcare IT company InsideRx. Welcome to the show, Serge. Pleasure to be here. Um, and we're going to talk today about um, adverse drug events related to vancomycin and sort of, you know, how uh, hospitals can, can deal with that based on some new guidelines that came out and how technology can help in that. Um, but first off, I wanted to ask you to tell me a little bit about yourself and about InsideRx. Yeah, sure. So my background, I was a trained biomedical engineer. So I was a scientist first by profession. Um, once I graduated undergrad, I actually worked in the biopharma industry for several years, uh, initially at Pfizer, then at Genentech, and my job was basically to analyze uh, pharmacology data to support drug development decision making. And one of the decisions that I would help support is identifying what the right dose should be in the intent to treat patient population for that drug. Um, I left biopharma to, to go to academia. Uh, you know, I worked in, I was at, went over to UCSF to get my PhD in uh, a field called pharmacogenomics, which is a study of how genetic factors impact drug response. Um, but uh, also a field called pharmacometrics, which is basically using mathematical modeling to determine drug response variability. Um, but the reason why that's important is because my entire career sort of led me to this point in terms of starting InsideRx. Uh, and broadly speaking, we're a precision medicine technology company, but we focus primarily on the last mile of precision medicine, which is precision dosing. Now, our goal as a company is to create a world where patients can be confident that all approved medications will actually work as intended, like with maximal efficacy, minimal toxicity. So my career from starting from biopharma, uh, going into academia, laid the foundation to start InsiderX. And I started it with some amazing co-founders, uh, Ron Kaiser, who's a co-founder, uh, who's a postdoc in my lab at the time, Ranveer, who's working at Genentech, and one of my professors, Radha Savic. And so, you know, to date, we're, you know, we've been at it since 2015, and we've made a lot of progress since we started. And that's very important to... As we talk about adverse drug events, um, give us an idea of how big this problem is of ADEs. Yeah, sure. So, you know, maybe you can provide a little bit of context um, and zoom out a little bit. Um, one of the sort of biggest problems in the healthcare ecosystem today is treatment failure. So basically drugs just not working for patients. And you know, there are two sides of this story that you're probably well aware of. Um, the first side is lack of efficacy, right? Where, and for your listeners, efficacy is essentially the measure of the ability of the drug to treat whatever condition it's indicated for. So in the case for say a type two diabetic patient taking metformin, the efficacy measure is actually glucose levels or hemoglobin A1C. Um, for a cancer patient, given chemotherapy, the efficacy measure would be basically tumor size. So lack of efficacy for these medications would basically imply that Metformin is not lowering glucose levels and chemotherapeutic agent is not reducing the tumor size. Um, the other side, in addition to efficacy, has to do with toxicity um, resulting from drug administration. 
So in the examples that I gave for metformin, a rare toxic event is uh, what's called lactic acidosis. And for chemotherapy, it's neutropenia. But neutropenia uh, might put the patient at risk of an infection, which is a commonly cited adverse drug event. So how big is the problem of ADEs? Um, well, ADEs are one of the biggest patient safety issues, both in the inpatient setting and outpatient setting. It's responsible for about 100,000 deaths each and every year with a cost burden of $136 billion annually. Uh, ADEs are estimated to be the fourth leading cause of death in the United States, and it impacts about 2 million hospital stays annually in the U.S. Um, so it's a really big problem. And you know, recently we read an article that, which was quite surprising, and the article summarized that about 30 to 50% of these adverse drug events are dose-related. So precision dosing is a key component here in terms of mitigating ADEs. Um, and, you know, specifically we were going to discuss um, vancomycin, um, which is an antibiotic. What What is that typically used to treat and, and how are the, do these new guidelines that just came out affect, um, you know, sort of the use of it? Yeah, sure. So vancomycin is a very commonly used antibiotic. It's an anti-infective drug that's used widely across the healthcare ecosystem. Um, vancomycin is a drug that has a narrow therapeutic window. So basically, a narrow therapeutic window implies that the, there's a sweet spot when it comes to dosing. So the efficacious dose is very close to the toxic dose for an individual patient. Um, because vancomycin has a narrow therapeutic window, it undergoes what's called therapeutic drug monitoring. So I'm going to get a little bit technical here, but hopefully I you know, keep this relatively simple. Um, therapeutic drug monitoring, what that means is the clinical practice behind dosing vancomycin requires a collection and measurement of drug concentration levels at uh, designated dosing intervals to maintain the concentration in the patient's bloodstream. So why that's important is because the clinician then uses that information to adjust the dosing for an individual patient to maintain the concentration level at a desired target. So the assumption here, right, is that uh, for drugs that have a neurotherapeutic window that undergo therapeutic drug monitoring, like vancomycin, that there's a definable relationship between the dose of the drug, the drug concentration level, and the Therapeutic, therapeutic effect, which in this case is the ability to treat the infection, but also avoid uh, acute kidney injury. Um, and I say all this because I think it's an important sort of uh, context for the guidelines. And, and one important thing that I want to note is that at times, the relationship between concentration level and therapeutic effect isn't quite so clear. So the new dosing guidelines that came out recently are an evolution essentially of the previous ones that were published in 2009. The 2009 dosing guidelines recommended what's called uh, targeting steady state trough concentration levels between 15 to 20. So a steady state trough level is basically a drug level collected at the end of a dosing interval. And the belief was that uh, clinicians should make dose adjustments to achieve a trough between 15 to 20. And by doing that, the belief was that efficacy would be maximized and you know, toxicity would be minimized. Now, since 2009, <clears throat> the question across the uh, scientific and clinical community was whether or not trough-guided dosing to achieve a target 15 to 20 was clinically appropriate. 
so over the past decade or so, there have been several published studies comparing trough guided dosing to other pharmacokinetic metrics, such as area under the curve, which is AUC guided dosing. Um, and these studies converge on the conclusion that AUC-based vancomycin dosing is a more accurate way to maximize the antibiotic's efficacy while minimizing the risk of nephrotoxicity. So instead of targeting a steady state trough of 15 to 20, the recommendation was to target an area under the concentration curve between 400 to 600. So flash forward, the new guidelines, the 2020 guidelines that came out uh, were published based on this research and uh, basic, well, it was basically on the basis of safety. And the safety rationale was that the AUC target attainment would improve patient safety by reducing nephrotoxicity rates. Uh, the guidelines were endorsed by major societies like the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, the Infectious Disease Society of America, and so forth. And aside from the main recommendation, which was recommending AUC guided dosing, uh, the other recommendation was to use uh, a Bayesian methodology, uh, specifically a model-informed precision dosing approach to determine the AUC and to guide dose adjustments. So now with the guidelines published, and you know, in terms of what this means, um, many hospitals and health systems are assessing whether or not to make that transition from trough to AUC guided dosing. And then for the sites that do want to make the transition, there are a ton of different questions that have to be answered for the institution, like what is the right software tool? Uh, what does the implementation process look like? What is the demonstrated return on investment? And if we, you know, one of the questions is if we transition from trough to AUC guided dosing, what impact does that have on nephrotoxicity rates at my institution? So, you know, from our perspective, this is a pretty big step forward for, for precision dosing because this is one of the first examples that a Bayesian approach was recommended to actually optimize drug dosing. Um, and I guess another question too is how widespread is precision dosing right now? Is it still fairly new? Um, you know, when it comes to sort of hospitals in, in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, I think you know, one important thing to note here is that you know, looking at historically, drugs are typically designed for the average patient, right? Um, hospitals have not really implemented precision dosing in the past for you know many different reasons, but one of the main reasons is because uh, of fixed dosing. So if you open up the FDA drug label across many different medications, you're going to typically find fixed dosing or dosing adjusted for simple factors such as age and body weight. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, I worked in drug development for several years at various biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And my job was essentially to do the analysis to support the dosing part of the drug label. And one of the reasons why fixed dosing, right, instead of precision dosing, is such common practice by, by uh, drug companies is because the clinical trials are in general are designed for the average patient. Um, and the reason why this is an issue is because patient population, there are many different patient populations that are not well studied in a phase three trial, right? Like pediatric patients, geriatrics, patients that are taking many different medications, uh, patients with end organ dysfunction, just to name a few. And, and these are the types of subgroups that are not well represented in a phase three trial because they are not the average patient. And 
As a result, when the drugs are approved and patients in these subpopulations receive the medication, there is going to be a potential risk that the drug just simply will not work, right? Because of lack of efficacy due to uh, the, you know, the drug not achieving the therapeutic effect, or that there might be a higher chance that an adverse drug event is going to occur. And it intuitively makes sense, right? Because we're all fundamentally different as individuals. Uh, we all you know, absorb, distribute, metabolize, and respond to drugs you know, at different extents and at different rates. And this disposition really impacts the amount of drug required for each and every one of us. But unfortunately, these characteristics are not taken into account today with respect to how drugs are developed and approved. Uh, we just simply don't know a lot about the pharmacological characteristics of many different drugs in different subpopulations. So, you know, times are certainly changing and precision dosing is intending to individualize the treatment strategy for each individual patient. And these guidelines will now kind of give, you know, I think lend more credence to, to using precision dosing as opposed to um, fixed dosing. Absolutely. You know, from, my, from our perspective, vancomycin is sort of a poster child of precision dosing, right? With the transition from trough to AUC guided dosing and the recommendation that a model-informed precision dosing approach is, in fact, the right approach to figure out what the AUC is, now, that's a big step forward for the precision dosing field. And we expect that other drugs, other therapeutic areas are going to uh, follow suit. Um, is it a, you mentioned the transition for, you know, hospitals that are kind of using the old, the old way of, of doing things, you know, can you go into a little bit more about how that, you know, how that um, happens? And is it, you know, is there hesitation just because they're just, you know, kind of used to that old way and, and a little, you know, obviously change is always scary for everybody, but um, is it obviously requires a lot of changing of systems and, and things like that. Yeah, I think you're trying to get at the sort of technology enablers, right? If you look at this field of precision dosing, so I talked a little bit about context, right? Historically, why drugs are designed for the average patient and it's sort of the root is drug development. And I think that, you know, is certainly changing as the healthcare industry transitions away from fee-for-service to value-based care. Um, but in it, aside from that, precision dosing as a field, right, where you're using data, patient data, you're using models to determine the right dose for the right patient, that field essentially has been around since like the early 70s, maybe late 60s. And one of the reasons aside from you know like one of the reasons aside from the drug development issue uh why this hasn't taken off yet is because of technology uh technology uh, enablers that are not in place right so one of the things that happened recently in the last 15 20 years is cloud computing right the ability to actually deploy software on the cloud you know from our perspective was a pretty big enabler because 20 years ago if you were to build a precision dosing software and deploy it you know, every change that you make to the software, any change that you make to the underlying algorithm, you know, that would require substantial effort to redeploy that software, to send that software, send that code essentially to all your customers. Um, aside from that, I think the main thing that has sort of catapulted this is the advances in electronic health record systems. Um, you know, clinical decision support tools are just most likely going to be effective when they're integrated into the clinical workflow. Um, you know, 40 years ago, a person's medical record comprised of, you know, a few sheets of paper and a folder. And 
accessing this data was a huge challenge and leveraging that data to make an informed clinical decision was virtually impossible. So today, you know, with modern RESTful API standards like FHIR, uh, solutions can actually be implemented into the EHR and into the clinical workflow. So these are all sort of reasons why hospitals and health systems are prepared to receive a solution like this. Now, the evidence certainly has to catch up across a variety of therapeutic areas, and there have to be macro-level forces that are in place, like the vancomycin-dosing guidelines that you know, propel the adoption of precision dosing more broadly. And again, I'm going to go back to the drug development um, example, but we have to change the way drugs are developed, right, from the first place. And ultimately, as an industry, we need to stop expecting that every patient will, will tolerate and respond to drugs at the same identical drug dose. And I think by doing this, by having this recognition, we can address one of the biggest patient safety issues in the United States, which, which is the high rates of adverse drug events. Um, and how long will it take, would it take for a hospital kind of to, to switch over? You know, now you mentioned the, the technology enablers, but how long does that transition take to kind of move to precision dosing? So from an implementation standpoint, what ends up happening is you first have to you have to first show uh, pilot the software, right? So we go, we work with the health system, they use the software for a given period of time. And if they uh, want to move forward, then the question is, how do you implement it? Well, there are two main components there that we think about. One is um, implementing within the electronic health record system. So uh, as an organization, we've uh, you know been we're partnered with Epic and Cerner. We're on their app stores now, so integration is, is significantly easier today than it was you know five years ago. Uh, and so you know a typical integration process could vary depending on the amount of resources applied at the institution. But we've you know shown a pretty strong efficiency in that regard. And secondly, uh, you know the training has to be done. So if you're implementing a precision dosing solution, in the case for vancomycin, to target area under the curve, uh, your staff has to be properly trained, right? So the clinical pharmacists have to undergo training with our amazing clinical uh, customer success team. And the customer success team is basically showing how to use the software. Uh, there are certain clinical considerations that are shown, um, but basically that whole process happens in the form of, you know, in, in the time, time span of one to two weeks, uh, that along with the integration is what's required to get the software up and running. And, you know, you mentioned you guys are you're already piloting this. I mean, how, I guess, how long will it be before this is kind of the standard of care, uh, you know, in the country? Obviously, uh, we're guess, seeing, right? Yeah, for, yeah, I mean, it's a hard guess, but, you know, I think it's, we have to take this one step at a time, right? And as I mentioned, vancomycin is sort of a poster child for precision dosing at the point of care. But a lot of other things have to change in order for this to be broad, this technology to be broadly adopted across the entire healthcare ecosystem, across multiple therapeutic areas. But vancomycin has to be successful. And from our perspective, you know, it has been successful with the partners that we've worked with. In fact, you know, one of the one of the main issues with vancomycin is, you know, the reason why the guidelines came out was on the basis of safety, and the intent was to avoid acute kidney injury rates. And what we've shown with a number of our partnering institutions is the ability to reduce the uh, rates of acute kidney injury by as much as thirty to fifty percent. So that's a significant reduction in a uh, adverse drug event. 
right? Um, and if we can, if 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 us, we, you know, our company included, but other companies that are developing similar solutions, if we can demonstrate this clinical success at scale uh, for vancomycin, then I think there's a, a really strong tailwind and rationale to do this for other medications. But in order for this to be broadly adopted across other drugs and other therapeutic areas, uh, macro level forces have to be at play. And one of the key forces here are the guidelines that have changed to really suggest more and more of an individualized approach for vancomycin. But we, you know, we're expecting the same thing to happen across other drugs and other therapeutic areas. Do you know? I mean, do you know? Like, are there other sort of studies or, or guidelines in the works for other uh, medications? Yeah, and a slightly different route. Uh, again, I'll get a little bit technical here, but for chemotherapy, there's uh, CMS guidelines that were recently uh, published last year, uh, where there is a quality measure that uh, for outpatient chemotherapy, if there's one of ten avoidable side effects that occur, one of them being neutropenia then that could impact the quality star rating for a hospital. And so neutropenia is, it's, it's considered an avoidable side effect, right? An avoidable safety issue related to chemotherapy dosing. And so individualizing the dose of chemotherapy may not, it may be really effective in terms of reducing the rates of neutropenia, right? And also reduce the rates of infection associated with neutropenia in patients that are you know, cancer patients that are getting chemotherapy. So that's another example, really, of a, um, you know, it's more of a CMS measure here, not necessarily a, you know, a society guideline, but a measure that could uh, really uh, drive the field forward and improve the adoption of this kind of technology nationwide. And CMS is huge. So, I mean, obviously, that's, that would be very influential in terms of, you know, kind of convincing, um, you know, everybody to kind of go to go this this direction absolutely and we see more and more of this you know if you think about like uh so guidelines is one cms obviously is another sort of macro level kind of uh you know catalyst and going back to drug development we're seeing a lot of this with biopharma companies as well they the the concept of incorporating precision dosing earlier on in the clinical development process so as you are developing a new therapeutic start thinking about how the therapeutic should be individualized. Now, the, the reason why you'd want to do this as a biopharma company is because times are certainly changing, right? We, you know, right now, the healthcare industry is moving more and more away from fee-for-service to value-based care, where economic in incentives are gonna be tied more to quality, to improving clinical outcomes and the volume of healthcare services delivered and the reason why this is important is because in a value-based care world, precision dosing is going to be a key enabler. So uh, this macro level shift, right, from fee-for-service to value-based care is an economic force that is going to impact every major stakeholder in the healthcare ecosystem, from the provider to the payer to the biopharma company. And so from the perspective of the biopharma company, there is an added motivation to incorporate precision dosing into the drug development process. And for a select for select medications, right, drugs that have similar kind of underlying characteristics to vancomycin, they there may be the need to bundle to combine precision dosing applications with the new medication so that you know when the drug is approved, the precision dosing application is also approved. And so practically speaking, what that would mean is you know, when the drug is then administered to patients, the clinician would have 
a precision dosing algorithm and application that they could use to figure out the right dose for, for that individual patient by taking into account who that patient really is. And that's sort of, I guess, that's a ways off, but that's sort of ideally that's how, you know, it'll, it'll happen down the road. Yeah, you know, I would say it's it's definitely the trend right now. Um, and I think from our perspective, because we do a lot of work with not only health systems, but also biotech and pharmaceutical companies, mm -hmm. we're seeing more and more of this, right? So precision dosing is getting incorporated into the clinical trial process. And for select few medications, you know, there is the motivation to potentially launch the drug with a precision dosing application. So I think, you know, for this to happen at scale, it'll certainly take time. But uh, you know, having a couple of key wins where, you know, the drug is the drug performance, you know, as it defined by maximizing efficacy and minimizing toxicity, um, that needs to be maximized, right? That performance needs to be maximized and precision dosing ends up being a very valuable approach uh, to, to maximize that performance. And are you, are you seeing a groundswell of support for sort of the, you know, the personalization of medicine? You know, as opposed to you, you mentioned, you know, drugs were kind of designed for, you know, the average patient patient. And now it's kind of, you know, now you can you're looking more at specific populations. Uh, are, you, are you seeing that kind of, you know, in general, that kind of support for, you know, for that kind of indiv individualized personalization? Absolutely. We're seeing it across the board. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we're seeing it in the provider space. Right. Vancomycin dosing guidelines is a really nice example of that trend. Uh, there are other sort of, uh, you know, like the CMS measure, other sorts of guidelines that are, are in the early early stages of getting uh, modified. Uh, but, you know, aside from payers, uh, aside from providers, payers and biopharma companies are also interested in personalization. I mean, you're seeing this across the board, you know, precision medicine, right, which is a term that's been around for uh, quite some time, right? Initially, the focus is all around targeted therapies. Right, where you use a, you know genetic information to identify the right drug for the right patient, right? Mm -hmm. So that that historically that's what people think about when they think about precision medicine, and that is extremely important, right? So using uh, genetic data to figure out what drug is going to be appropriate for you is not a trivial pursuit. In fact, it's a super important, uh, super important component. But precision medicine is not just about that. Right. It's, it's not just about using genetic data to identify the right drug uh, in, in, in the space of oncology. It's also about using that patient data to optimize the drug that you select. Right. So when you pick the drug, figuring out what the right dose is for that medication, figuring out what the right dosing frequency for that medication should be, is um, at times just as important, if not more important than the drug selection piece. So we're seeing sort of precision medicine take off. And the definition of precision medicine broadening from not just drug selection, but also dose personalization as well. Nice. Well, Serge, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was really, uh, really interesting. And it sounds like, uh, you know, you're making a lot of headway in this area. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you very much for hosting me. That wraps up episode 33 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.